Andrew, I left home at 15 years old and because I was so vulnerable, mm-hmm. because I had no self-esteem, because I was so worn down from the homophobia that I was experiencing in and outside of my home, in church and whatever else. And then I came to San Francisco, which was a kind of an enclave and it was a teenager during the height of the, the, the when I was at the highest risk group of my first pandemic. Um, and then what I witnessed in my friendship circles, I think that, um, that you know, I, I was so coined by that, that even now, just now what happened was I just started thinking about my friend Richard um, and I lost my train of thought because I just so emotionally go into that place. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. You all don't know this, but it's a nice nightly cocktail hour for me as I record this. I'm drinking a spiced apple toddy, um, which sounds fancy, but it was just me pouring spiced apple drink (laughs) and uh, some whiskey. But I'm here with Matthew Clark Davison, who I am just so happy to have in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. He... um, was so nice to reach out to me on, I think Twitter is how it all started, Matthew. But um, I'm here to discuss his new novel, Doubting Thomas, his debut novel. And the reason I want to point out that it's a debut is because I'll eventually read Michael Cunningham's blurb about it. And, you know, Michael Cunningham is almost a martyr to me in the literary <laughs> field. Uh, yeah. So, Matthew, I'm just so happy to finally get to meet you and, you know, just hear your voice because your words have really been resonating with me for the last two weeks. So yeah, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for your incredible show and for amplifying all the things you do on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, um, including lots and lots of um, queer literature. I appreciate you and your colleagues. Well, Thank you for that. Um, Yeah, Matthew is a dedicated listener. Um, And I actually, to speak of someone who I did have on, I I was very reminded of Aaron Hamburger's Nirvana is Here, Mm -hmm. um, which deals with um, sexual abuse and um, has this foreshadowing element to it. Not foreshadowing, sorry. It goes back in time with the mm-hmm. protagonist and then him finding out that his ex is being accused of abuse. So like when I found out that Doubting Thomas had an element of an accusation of sexual assault, I instantly thought of that. But, um, you know, your novel is very different because it's not about um, assault between consenting, not consenting, but assault between um the same age range, say two adults. It's mm-hmm. actually a teacher who is being accused of assaulting his fourth grade student. So yes. yeah, I mean, this is the way of what happens right in the beginning, right? And if you want to explain, Matthew, I mean, 
Sure. What are we all brought into from the just start of your novel? Like what's well, happening? For, okay. So for a number of years while I worked on this manuscript, the very first chapter was one sentence long and the sentence was, he didn't do it. And that was chapter one. And the reason why I kept that there was because I never was interested in writing a novel that was kind of like where the unit of satisfaction for the reader might be whether or not the character did it. I was much more interested in different, in mm-hmm. in um, I, in exploring very different questions. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I this is just not my style of, uh, what was my interest was at the time is whether or not like, um, he he did it, but um, it opens with Thomas McGurin. He's a he's the middle child, um, one of three boys, and the the novel opens with kind of three different things that are going down at once. One is that his he's a beloved member of a very progressive Portland, Oregon community called Country Day, where he has been a fourth grade teacher for a long time. His best friend is the head of school there. And uh, um, he has just been very, very um, enmeshed in that community. He's a part of the fundraising that allows um, scholarship kids to come uh, along with the very privileged people who can pay the 60 plus K tuition for kindergarten through 12. <laughs> it's set in, in the, um, during the Obama era, 2012, 2013. And uh, um, one of Thomas's kids, and you find this out very quickly in the novel, comes into the classroom and he hasn't quite he gone to the bathroom and he comes back. Toby goes to the bathroom, comes back and his pants fall down mm-hmm. and he got flustered. And this has happened to him before in the classroom. Um, and it's unusual for a fourth grader to get flustered like that. And so Thomas kind of just let him span there for a minute and then went and helped him and pulled up his pants. And so Toby went home and told the truth. And it's really important for me whenever I do interviews about my book. And, you know, I've said this and written and, and also um, a lot of the interviews that I've gotten a chance to do that the people who are the victims of sexual abuse don't lie about it. Mm-hmm. And so Toby was telling the truth, but where the, you know, Thomas did touch his pants, did fasten his pants, did touch the waistband of his pants. All of those things are true in the same way that a mom might help their kid whose pants fell down or the way that it, an adult might pick up a hat mm-hmm. and put it back on a kid's head if their hat fell off and they got flustered. It was a very innocent thing, but Toby um, told his parents that Thomas pulled up my pants and it, it in the imaginations of those parents, it became something um, much bigger and Thomas uh, loses his job. Around the same time, his brother has a cancer diagnosis and he's going through a breakup. Um, because all three of those things are pretty heavy, I will say from the get-go, Andrew, that there's recipes in the book and there are scenes that are funny. <laughs> Yeah, no, there's a lot of there's a lot of Thomas's incisive humor and um just his friendship dynamics with especially his friend who lives in San Francisco. Dana, um, yeah. Dana, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, there is humor. Um, but it's even like when I was talking about um what Aaron Hamburger does, and if you haven't, Nirvana is here is such an interesting read. But, um, you know, and I didn't want to say consensual at all, because that's exactly the opposite of what's going on with a soul. And what you said, Matthew, is 
that assault um, survivors are telling what happened. And I think, you know, when we're dealing with the psyche of children, that's something I wanted to ask you right away is like, how did you, um, how did you grapple with thinking about the psyche of a child explaining this narrative? Then when we see in other narratives where it actually is an adult's point of view, who's gone through an assault, right? Like we're not actually getting the point of view of Toby. We're getting the point of view of the accused. So, right. Yeah. So his Toby's parents are the ones that make the accusation. Mm-hmm. The only information as far as the, they, they, in the book, in the novel, there are several, you know, a school like that, with that number of resources did exhaustive research to see whether or not Thomas was guilty of something. And, um, you know, and usually people that would, um, that would treat a child that way would leave a evidence of or a pattern or some sort of grooming there's usually something that happens that leads to um, a perpetrator like that getting caught Mm -hmm. and so um in in my mind toby the kid his only function in the book is that he went home and told the truth that that thomas touched my pants there's a party a fundraising party that thomas goes to and some stuff goes down at the Mm -hmm fundraising party and i actually don't think of the jays that's the couple who's who are toby's parents i don't think of mr and mrs j toby's parents as being bad people nor do i think of them as purposely or strategically trying to ruin thomas's life i think of them as people who are probably doing the best they can they're they're each dealing with their own dynamics around gender roles um Lisa J. Toby's mom is an executive and her husband um, was in nursing, I mean, not in nursing school, but was in med school when when, when uh, they met, mm-hmm. but decided to be the, the full-time father. And dynamics at Lisa's job have recently changed. And she took on this, this um, head of fundraising for this, this big annual fundraiser at this prestigious school where there's parents who you know, their social status is really important to them and they're, they're heavy money earners. And so um, there are a lot of dynamics that are happening at this party. And um, I won't, I won't include any spoilers about that. um, Because I did before and somebody got mad at me. And so I won't, you'll have to read the book or or listen to the the audio book in order to find out what what happens at the party. Well, there's some desire that is uh, unrequited, we'll put it that way. There's, you know, the um, the father is thinking through his own desire. Well, I, um, yeah, I think, and I think that, you know, arguably there may have been in this time period, somebody that did something inappropriately, in, who made a, a, a sexual advance towards another person inappropriately, but it was not Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in the human mind, unfortunately, these things get conflated. And one of the things that I was really interested in, um, the way that the that this particular jumping off point for the novel came up because its actual origin isn't something else. It's about, it isn't in Brothers, which I'm happy to tell you about if you're interested. Yeah. But um, the this particular thing is I was working 
for a nonprofit in San Francisco that sent me to a lot of different schools within the San Francisco Unified School District. And everybody thinks of San Francisco as this very progressive town, and it is. And I was at a school where the, 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 every single um, car in the parking lot practically had an Obama bumper sticker in it and there's you know you walk down the hall and there was all of these like there were rainbow flags and there was like no bullying campaigns and i had been there several times but um i was just comparing that to i was born in 1970 and i dropped out of school because there was no place for somebody who expressed himself the way that i did and i you know was never able to freely express myself and so i was just and and at that particular school at the particular location that I was visiting, we were witnessing a class and there was an out gay school teacher, which again was, even though I had been living in San Francisco, I left home when I was very young. I left home when I was 15. I came to San Francisco by the time I was 19. By this time I was in my forties. And so I had been here for a long time. There's a lot that I got used to, but there's still something very moving to me, given my background about being in a school where students could come out and they could see role models of gay teachers. So I'm in that classroom and I'm just like, I'm on cloud nine, just thinking like, oh my gosh, we've made so much progress. And I had been an activist and I thought, oh, I paid a tiny, tiny, like, you know, I'm, I'm a grain of sand on the giant beach of all of the oceans in the world that, that may have played a tiny part in us getting to this place. And then another visitor of that same classroom said later that this teacher had touched one of the students inappropriately. And the administrator said, oh my gosh, what do you mean? And really drilled him. And it turned out that that teacher who the, the witness who said, accused him of touching this kid inappropriately, um, it turned out that all he could say was that he had touched the kid's shoulders and that, that it was more that he was flamboyant. And so of course my emotional reaction was to go from being completely concerned about the kid and then also flabbergasted because I'm a person who feels he pays very close attention to his environment, his own environment, that I'd missed it if something inappropriate had happened because I didn't see it and I was right there to being mortified for the teacher once I realized I did see him touch the shoulders of many children when, when they were trying to get them to line up. And, you know, this is very normal in classrooms at that age. And so um, this, in this other person's mind, who also, by the way, was one of the people with an Obama a bumper sticker, couldn't reconcile, probably because of what's already in the collective consciousness of our nation, mm -hmm. that a person could be openly gay or out and gay and touch a child. Mm. This conflation that's in the collective consciousness about out gay people and um, homosexual panic, like yeah. the stuff that's going on in Texas, stuff that was happening in my childhood about, it was just crazy, like this conflation between predators and out gay people being a danger to children. Yeah, like it, that it was... they can, oh, sorry to jump in, but it's like you said, what we're actually sadly seeing now, like thinking that just LGBTQ, the presence of LGBTQ people is like quote unquote brainwashing children or like leading to the children's they're somehow grooming them and like all that language lack of safety yes like and it like you said that to me is the root of the panic and i mean you framed it as homosexual panic which 
actually, I don't know if it's still able to be used in the court of law. I know. I think it depends on the jurist, the state, but mm-hmm. um, like for a while, uh, someone who was accused of a crime could use homosexual panic as, well, this person made me uncomfortable because they were openly gay. And that's why I right. did what I did. Right. Like, right. You know, unfortunately, I think that was what was used with Matthew Shepard's case. And also Dan White um, with with Harvey Milk. You know, it, it goes way back. And I do think that it was with Matthew Shepard's case as well. And, you know, there's this, this um, notion that there's something, uh, to me, I, I feel like a lot of... Um, a lot of the kind of homophobia that was very prevalent when I was growing up was um, very tied to misogyny because I knew, I I do still know adults who like Thomas in the novel had to come out, had to come up to other people. I never once, I always joke around that there was a moment in a dim corner of a bar in a suburb outside of Milan in Italy once between 2001 and 2003 when I was sitting with my friend Daniela and somebody thought that I was her boyfriend and that was, and then I moved one centimeter and people knew that I was her gay friend because, you know, I've just never, ever, ever, A, passed as straight. And in adolescence, I just decided since I can't pass, I'm going to go in the opposite direction mm. and just be a hundred percent as expressive as I want to be in. And I also, of course, want to keep my blood in my body so it was strategic about finding communities where I could be 100% expressive. And I also took some really big risks. But I think that it was the femininity that people were reacting to more so than, I mean, because whether or not I had sex was not an issue in my own. Um, and so many people I, I know, um, childhood bullying and or abuse scenarios. It was the fact that they couldn't act like a, a boy or a man, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. So um, I I think that the this this it's very throughout our history it's really interesting it's very contrived um, politically contrived mm-hmm. to equate um, it's it's a way to get votes is to to um, people have always felt very protective of children and it's it's to convince people that they're um danger in danger around a certain type of person mm-hmm. and a promise that we were going to protect you against these people that we are going to limit these people's rights and or limit the places that they can be um is a way essentially to garner votes and then power and money yeah. and so I, I think like, that we see this again and again well it's mm-hmm. almost like back to anita bryan and i think it was save the children or um, absolutely yeah that yeah, children is always this tactic of instilling fear, usually of just invoking, well, protect the children, but whose voices are you marginalizing at that, you know, by using this type of rhetoric? I mean, even, you know, what we see now with, I've seen videos of those who think, um, like guns don't harm children as much as drag queen shows. And I'm like, wait, what is the logic here? Yeah. Like of attending a drag queen show is more harmful than 
what's happening with mass shooting like shootings and it's i don't i know it's um it's, it's upsetting yeah, yeah it's baffling because i feel like the logic is obvious to me of no obviously a gun is more dangerous to a child than exposing them to gender expression but you know but going back to your book you keep bringing it up and i think it's so interesting you know you're not um you didn't choose say thomas in a school district of you know conservative a conservative um republican base um instead it's this very progressive wealthy enclave of a day school and you know i want you to like open up a little about that matthew like what are you Mm -hmm. tapping into that into there because i definitely think you're talking about a certain um progressive attitude that exists in mass with social class so yeah yeah i i do i I hope i hope to god that in the in the novel that the relationships between the characters and the situations that they're in are both believable and compelling insofar as how the events both trigger thomas to look at his past in a certain way i'm very interested in memory and how present day situations um reveal the past in our mind and the the simultaneity of living this moment while remembering another moment and the 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 highly um referential mind that's something one of the reasons why i love michael cunningham so much is because i feel like he's absolutely brilliant with that if you read um the hours or if you read at home at the end of the world you see that there's um these triggers from this present day moment into a, a whatever's happening into a deep inner life and sometimes way back in history and back to this particular moment and lots of my favorite writers um do that of course tony morrison is the 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 absolute best where it's like a a character can be um you know take you through decades in just you know while while shucking some peas for dinner yes and um i think that that this is also one of the reasons why people write novels is because i'm super fascinated between um the the private inner life of a person versus the performed public self. Mm-hmm. And um, I've never been very good at, I mean, of course I have very personal aspects of me that I try to conceal and avoid, especially if the things are embarrassing or if they're not flattering or whatever. I mean, I'm, I have vanity. I have all of the, the things that um, most humans do. And, you know, I, I don't want to be going out like advertising my character defects in public all the time. But at the same time, um, compared to the average person I'm told by others, you, you know, what you see is what you get a lot of the times. <laughs> and so the, you know, so this, this capacity that a lot of people have to have such contrast between their inner life mm-hmm. and desires and how they express themselves on the outside has always been fascinating for me. So I chose Thomas as a character because how different he is from me. And because he is capable of passing. I'm also interested in this, this, the notion of passing and like what happens, what price people pay Mm. for, um, you know, maybe because I never could, I I also on some level (laughs) 
give Thomas a really bad year because in a way, like he didn't suffer as much mm-hmm. as some of the 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 um the folks who were more on the front lines of the um, LGBT, LGBTQ movement, especially during the early AIDS years, that he, you know, leaves San Francisco for Portland in order to avoid. So anyway, these are a lot of the notions that I had um, about the relationships. I, if there are things that I am saying about class in the book and neo-progressive politics and, and blind spots, I hope that I'm shining a light on my own hypocrisies because I don't think that or or attempting to be in conversation. I because I think Andrew, I left home at 15 years old and because I was so vulnerable, mm-hmm. because I had no self-esteem, because I was so worn down from the homophobia that I was experiencing in and outside of my home in church and whatever else. And then I came to San Francisco, which was a kind of an enclave and it was a teenager during the height of the, the, the when I was at the highest risk group of my first pandemic. Um, and then what I witnessed in my friendship circles, I think that, um, that you know, it, I, I was so coined by that that even now, just now, what happened was I just started thinking about my friend Richard um, and I lost my train of thought because I just so emotionally go into that place. And now a message from the Gay and Lesbian Review. Hello, listeners. This is Stephen Hemmert, the publisher of the GNLR, here with a special offer just for you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the GNLR, let me provide a little background. The GLR is a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features such as artists' profiles and the popular art memo column. Each issue brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme and brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, though you might find articles about online dating as a social phenomenon or the gay influence on 20th century fashion. For example, the theme of the current issue is Queens and Kings, and it features an article by Andrew Holleran about Truman Capote's relationships with glamorous women, the woman he called his swans. Now for the special offer... When you subscribe, you'll receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. That's seven issues instead of six. Visit GLReview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot O-R-G. Click subscribe and enter promo code I-T-B-R for your free issue. And as an added bonus, you'll receive online access to all archive issues of the magazine. The Ivory Tower Boiler Room is so happy to welcome Broadview Press as our official sponsor. Broadview Press is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities, mainly in English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, They always publish with an eye towards diversity, so there is a strong list of titles from women, people of color, and other authors from marginalized groups. In the summer of 2022, they launched their new Broadview anthology of American literature, 
which increases diversity in the classroom because it rethinks the American canon and breathes new life into the American literary survey. It's actually been called, quote, the new gold standard in the field. I love using Broadview Press text in my own classroom at Stony Brook University. I can't wait to use the new anthology of American literature when I have the opportunity. And for all of you out there, Broadview Press has given us the official code, Ivory Tower, for 20% off site-wide on broadviewpress.com. Again, that is code Ivory Tower for 20% off. So I just, I, I think that because, oh, I, I remember what I was going to say. And now, you know, it's like I'm married. There is marriage. I didn't want to get married. I didn't think, I was just like, have you looked at the advertising for marriage? It's not very good. Like, why are gay people wanting to get married? And then I got into a motorcycle accident. My husband is... Um, was on an international visa. He's a scientist. He was on an international visa, and he would not have been able to to keep my to the, our apartment um, because his name wasn't on the lease. And so we got married for practical reasons um, that are about you know basic human rights. And then I was just like, oh, you know, I was so stupid. Not is to, I? I was rebelling against the romantic notion of like um, marriage as asserted by you know in some sort of heterosexist way. Yeah. Um, I mean, I keep so, saying, I feel like I'm entering, now that I'm 30, I'm entering what I call the cuffing season. Or I've heard people say this. It's not uh -huh. my. Tell me about that. Well, uh -huh. I mean, Beyonce just had a song called, I think it's Cuff It is her song from mm. her amazing Renaissance album. But um, I love that album. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite song but, is Church Girl. Yeah. Oh, okay. I have to listen to that one. I like Virgo's groove too, because I'm a Virgo like her. But, um, mm. So, you know, cuffing is just that like urge that you need to be in a relationship or you're open to it. And I always feel that the fall is always this, um, is I've noticed that's when I tend to go into a partnership romantically is in the fall for some reason. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's just that like, you know, leaving the summer, like going back into the workplaces, um, the cold maybe in the Northeast has something to do with it. I think the winter is also like a big romantic time. Um, pumpkin spice. Yes, pumpkin spice. Um, <laughs> you know, and then on Valentine's Day, they leave you. No, I'm just kidding. That doesn't always happen, but <laughs> it can. Um, um, but yeah, I think it's so interesting you say that about relationships, like the idea of marriage. I mean, I think I grew up where... Um, I remember as an undergrad, that's when um, New Jersey had just voted for same-sex marriage. Like, and I still have the newspaper because I kept mm -hmm. it from my uh, college. And I'm like, I need to archive this. So I still have it like in a bin. And I just knew it was a momentous occasion, but I also realized like, this is great for those who want to have that type of um marriage lifestyle but like it to me it doesn't represent all of of course queer voices it's you know like you said it's essential for government practical purposes but there's always more to me like okay i think i've also realized but i am in a time where you know i can thrive strive for a marriage if i want um and i think now my debate is more you know, 
do I want to marry? And if I don't marry, it's there in front of me. And it's kind of like, I'm, um, I'm making a statement and, um, but I think also, I guess we could say that too, of those who are straight, who don't want to marry, um, or don't want to have children, but it's, yeah, no, no, go ahead, Matthew. Well, I was going to say when, when Sarah Schulman was on your show and I just finished that incredible book and I also read it with Carl Sonlein's KM Sonlein's Army of Lovers at the same time it's a novel that's coming out by Amble Press my same press that um, um, KM Sonlein is also a, a, um, a you know legend in the in the, um, the gay literary scene um, for his his novel novel um, World of Normal Boys was Ooh, okay. a big breakthrough um <clears throat> But what I was going to say is that, you know, Sarah Schulman does such an incredible job in that in that oral history project. Um, forgive me, the the I always want to call it "Set the Record Straight," but it's called um, what's it called? You know what? Oh, I'm, let the. Uh, I think it's let, let the, the record, record show. show. Let, let the, the record, record show. show. Let the record show. It's such a great title, and for whatever reason, my mind won't. I've recommended the book to so many people and I and every time I struggle with the title, even though I love it a lot. Um, so, um, you know, it really illuminates how, even though it, it, that the early AIDS activism was credited to a certain few cisgender white guys, how influenced it was by so many different movements, oftentimes led by women and mm-hmm. or people of color and uh, um, also gender non-conforming folks and a huge portion of the people who did the AIDS activism that has benefited all of us, whether yeah. or not you have an immune deficiency. Um, it, the, the, it w- was done by people who had no notion of monogamy. They did not equate um, sexual experimentation with morality, you could have 10 different partners. And I love about um, Carl's book too, um, Army of Lovers, that um, the activists that were in the early New York act up were, they were busy sleeping with each other all the time. It was just like, it was a scene and be scene. It was a hookup. It was like, there was very expressive sexuality happening. And I think that one of the ways in which um, I really wanted to explore in Doubting Thomas is this idea of assimilation. What ended up happening to me was I grew, uh, I, I got a GED. I was I took a creative writing in the church basement of a um, of a human resources place in San Francisco called Glide Church that was um, famously led by Janice Miracatani and C- Cecil Williams. Jan Miracatani being this incredible um, poet and activist. And, uh, um, you know, I got a GED, I went to junior college, I went to college, I went to grad school, and then I started teaching in a university. And I realized that people couldn't see that I had been this teenage runaway in this hugely high risk category that almost didn't live through it. Like, in so many different ways, I almost didn't make it to 20. My two best friends died by the time they were 30. And yet, I was, I was starting to get further and further away from being perceived in that way, which are which in, in some ways are such incredible. I've heard a lot of people talk about how privilege, like white people get so um, defensive 
about um, the notion of white privilege sometimes. And the people that I listen to talk about white privilege from a point of view of people of color is like, listen, we don't want you not to, to have a safe and good life. Yeah. We want you to please acknowledge the fact that the starting line is uneven mm-hmm. and that there are things that, that if you are of a certain gender expression and or a certain body type and or a certain skin tone, um, whatever language you're, depending on where you are and all of the various contexts, you have advantages. Yes. And so I think that I ended up having a bunch of advantages that I hadn't had when I was younger. And my question to myself was, are we our siblings keeper? Like beyond being like, if you don't know someone, I'm like, am I truly fighting the good fight in the same way that I was when I was in the highest risk group? Because when I was shouting and screaming on the street in ACT UP and Queer Nation in San Francisco and in other rallies through Glide Church, my own life was at risk. But once into a, when, when, when once in a place of relative safety, do we continue to watch out for each other that way? And that's mm-hmm. what I was examining. And it's just like, or is it all just neo-progressive rhetoric? Yeah, yeah. Well, so and can... I think like for the audience out there, right? They, they might not all know what neo-progressive rhetoric is, but like- Well, I don't I... either, just to no, admit. Well, no, but like, <laughs> but just if I may, I like my my frustration that I've had with gay friends of mine is even like when I went to Fire Island for my birthday is how a few of my gay friends, well, you know, I I think because I have so many who are on Long Island or New York City based, they know the touch point of Fire Island. Like they understand that like embrace of eroticism and the openness with nudity. But there's a few of my friends who were like, well, you know, you have fun, but we're, uh, like that's too open for us or like have even questioned, you know, if their voice is too gay. And I'm like, but they are the first to say that they vote Democrat. And I'm like, this is confusing to me. Like you're so worried about how you're presenting yourself with your sexuality, but you keep making it a point that you voted, you know, for Biden. And I'm like, that's all like what is that doing for your representation i guess it makes you feel that you're helping others because you vote democrat like i understand there is an importance right like it does affect policy but yeah i point out flaws in the democratic party you know because i don't like to just allow politicians to get away with things like you know, I can open up here. People have heard me talk a little about my beliefs. Um, and this is freedom of expression, so I'm protected. But like, you know, even with the governor with Andrew Cuomo scandals, and I'm like, this is, mm-hmm. something's not right here. And I was mm-hmm. told to be quiet by a lot of my, like, gay Democrat friends. Or even just Democrats. Or, but I don't even want to call them Democrat friends. But they, like, made it a point that, no, no, like, don't say anything because that's someone who's a Democrat. And I said, but wait, you're attacking those who aren't Democrats. Like, shouldn't we shouldn't we hold people's feet to the fire? But that's just who I am as a person. Well, I, I appreciate, you seem very logic driven to me when I listen to you. And I think that a lot of people are very emotionally driven. 
And what's strange is that I'm consider myself to be an extremely emotionally reactive person. But at the same time, I was shocked. I had never taken an SAT or anything because like I said before, I dropped out of high school. So the first kind of standardized test that I had ever taken in my life is the GRE to apply to grad school creative yes. writing. Yeah. And I didn't even know what an MFA was like three months before I applied for them. And um, I got a perfect score in logic. And so the, of course, like, and I've always, I think, I think that novelists and poets and a lot of people that work within a particular form that has a rich history, oftentimes are, you know, sort of wanting things because in order to successfully pull out the novel, it, it has to have its own interior logic. You can do anything you want with a novel, but in, in, it, 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 in order to be a novel, it has to have certain components and you can rearrange and, and the proportions can be all different. You can reinvent the form in lots and lots of different ways, but there is essentially a, um, a logic to it. Whereas with life, there isn't necessarily that logic. People are really confusing. And so I, one of the things that I love about people is their, their, their inherent contradictions. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that one of the things that's, that's really, that my whole heart is wide open to, no matter who the person is, is that we want to be loved. We want to be part of a community. We want to keep the blood on the inside of our bodies. And so, so much pressure on so many different people, including like I was just talking to my, my stepmom about my father's family. It's like, you know, even with the Irish immigration to the United States, because I have an Irish heritage, um, you know, people assimilated and tried to dump down the things about them that were um, not dumped down, I shouldn't say that. They tried to erase and or hide the things about themselves that made them, you know, subject to ridicule or lower pay or to poor living conditions. And that's survival. That's like logic. That's, that's, that is logical. A person doing that is logical. And there, there's all sorts of things about identity and identity markers that are, um, there's a huge spectrum around what's theoretical versus what is, really going to impact your your daily your daily life it's like and so i think that if you're in a place of relative safety no matter what your identity markers are because of how much money you have or because of how assimilated you are into what people think of as mainstream society then um one of the things that you're doing is just taking good care of your physical body arguably but what are you sacrificing if you're if you're doing that in a way that's inauthentic to your own spirit? And I that's something that I'm very interested in. And the other thing is that I was raised to believe that we are our siblings' keepers, mm -hmm. that that if someone if we, we are only as strong as the weakest among us. And so, you know, one of the things that I saw with um people who were that, that a lot of gay white men were getting further and further ahead in certain places. And I, I keep talking about Sarah's book. I did read it recently. But, um, you know, you look even back at ACT UP and, and how strategic they were about choosing the type of person that was going to go in front of a camera, have the interview. Um, these guys, almost all of them were pa could pass as straight who were doing, uh, who had those high powered media jobs and, and the connections, and et cetera. And, um, you know, that's very, very different from a mom, a single mom 
with AIDS trying to raise their kids. And so I just, I think that even though both have, you know, identity markers that um, could make things challenging in a, in a racist, homophobic, sexist, misogynist culture, yeah. I, there's a difference. And yeah. so I, I think that like, does the person in a stronger, um, having experienced that, and the reason why I said it during lib in liberal, liberal, liberal Portland is because I'm not actually interested in the mentality of people that have um, absolutely are who are absolutely convinced that they're superior to another human being mm -hmm. and that God thinks that they're superior or whatever else. To me, that's just that's too that that's not something that I can relate to. Um, but what I can relate to is. And, and I mostly want to expose, I don't want to call anybody else out. Yeah. I want I want to explore my own psyche mm -hmm. and to find out ways in which I might improve. Yeah. Yeah, no, all of this is just so rich. And I mean, uh, I'm reminded of just because my Fire Island trip was by myself and I met so many different um <laughs> queer men um, and women, queer women um, that, you know, I think the general public would think, oh, okay, like if we're going to have self-selecting queer men, they're all going to like politically believe the same thing. But that was far from the truth. I mean, I was, I think I was just frankly surprised how many were apolitical or didn't want to talk about politics. Um, that is a privilege. Yeah, that's a privilege. Um, yes. But there was also someone who I actually befriended. You know, if he's listening, he is. I became friends with him and he was more on the right politically. But I'm also a person where I will hear you out. And I try to find, you know, try to listen to where you're coming from. And we were able to have a really good back and forth. And this is why... You know, I don't want to just surround myself with the same political party, even though I do know, you know, there's things going on on the right that are uh, there, there's a branch that's frightening. I'm not yeah. going to lie about that. Um, like election deniers. But, um, uh, you know, but if you are able to have a productive back and forth, like I have so many it's around so me. Yeah, and yeah, you, you know, we've I'm got on to do a, that. Yeah, and I'm on in a suburb on Long Island, and they're it's like a pretty mix 50-50 politically. And some people say, Well, why don't you just move to Manhattan? And I'm like, No, I found so many friends. I love being by the university, and I actually like those moments of wait, I don't agree with you. Like, let's go back a little. Like, where are you getting your sources from? But not like there is a moment we have to bring up Matthew because I think it's so clarifying to this discussion we're having here, which is there's this store employee and she like has her name and it looks like Cindy, but she calls out Thomas for not correctly identifying the D syllable in her name. And it's almost this arrogance, like you should have known what my name is. And, um, and that I had is so much fun of, with with those yeah, with those yeah, moments. Yeah. Well, and I think the right wing does like to mock a lot that well, mm -hmm. progressive people will call you out no matter what. Like they're always on the defense. Uh -huh. Like 
like that progressive people use the word triggered all the time or mm-hmm. um and i don't think most are going to jump down your throat like that with your name but mm-hmm. that is a type of you know realistic strain i've seen of um like you said at portland or like places that people think are very left leaning and um yeah yeah but like you know what does that moment for you really well that up? really happened to me my best oh. friend that i just was ha- i just w- was with in um green i call about five people my best friend and i'm referring to a person named emily and and i've spent a ton of time with her family and and a lot of it in portland and uh, that exact moment happened i was looking for pine nuts and i didn't i forgot that they were seeds the name is a little um confusing um and a friend of mine from portland a former student of mine who's become a friend zach um asked me was that at new seasons on hawthorne and i was like oh my god how did you know I was looking, yeah, oh, I shouldn't say that actually, because I love that store in certain ways. But the I just remember that the the, tom- the cherry tomatoes were like ungodly expensive, expensive. And I spent like this, I was I was so hungry and I couldn't find the pine nuts. And um you, you know, and an employee corrected me because I I mispronounced her name, even though I read it in you know, off of a name tag that didn't have like a indicator for the pronunciation and it wasn't just like oh you know i actually i have a friend named um charlotte but she spells it in the same way that a lot of people who pronounce their 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 name charlotte yeah yeah and you know when people call her charlotte she she's just like i pronounce it charlotte it's neutral it's not a the unit of satisfaction doesn't become like you've been a stupid ass for mispronouncing my name. I mean, the cafe in my area on the phone called me Angelo today. And I was Uh just like, and they know me, but I'm on the phone and I'm like, oh no, it's Andrew. Like making light. Like, I don't care. I mean, you can call me like Antonio and I'll just be like, no, it's Andrew. Right, right. And and I think that like the, so, okay. So I want to say a few things and I, and I feel like I keep talking about um, I, unlike Thomas, who avoided the AIDS years, I um, and I shouldn't say the AIDS years as if they're gone. I'm, what I mean, what I mean to say by that is the onset of uh, um, the pandemic in mm-hmm. San Francisco, where so many people um, from historically marginalized communities were suffering, mm-hmm. and. Um, and I'm talking about the late 80s and the early 90s and the just the catastrophic loss that was taking place. I experienced the, um, the I witnessed that and, um, and, and Thomas left in that, that and went to Portland um, and to try to avoid, not that there weren't people that were suffering in Portland too, there certainly were, but it was different proportions. So, um, to your point, I want to just say that one of the things that I really learned listening to um, Sarah Schulman's book is that this kind of discourse between people who have a primary purpose, say like ends aid, end AIDS now. Um, well, I can't remember exactly what the rallying call act up is either. I, I, there's certain things that my mind just will not um, remember verbatim. And um but it, it, there was a primary purpose. And then there was all of this fighting and disagreement within 
the organization that did not keep them from progressing their agenda. Mm-hmm. It actually strengthened strengthened the them because people who came from certain, you can't help what your background is. Like I can't hold it against you, like what family you were born in. But what I can do is, you know, insist that my point of view is um, is as relevant as anybody else's at the table and listen to other people's points of view at the table as if they're equal. I'm no more than you, but I'm also no less. Yeah. I'm no less than you, but I'm also no more. And so therefore your, your contribution here is important and valued even, and especially if I disagree with you. And that, that by people that have a, come together with a, um, that are bonded together by a similar purpose, um, can 100% disagree and come from differing points of view. And that can be okay. And we must be willing to engage in order to progress. And, you know, we just, we've seen so many ways in which people are so afraid of, uh, um, expressing a contrary opinion because of consequences that that you you know people are agreeing in public and disagreeing behind closed doors do you have a queer fascination with classic films ever wish you'd be transported back to that golden age of cinema as if you're in the movies themselves hi my name is christian garcia and I am the host of that old gay classic cinema. Join my friends and I as we travel back in time to that classic age of film and peel back the layers of how these films transformed our view behind the camera and into the lens of cinema. Make sure to follow my Instagram at that old gay classic cinema and I'll be sure to save you a seat at our next showing. See you there. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that a huge part of my writing this novel, um, and and you know Thomas avoids conflict so much. Like he leaves home in a certain way, he leaves San Francisco in a certain way, he even leaves Country Day in a certain way, knowing that he's innocent. Um, and so, I I wanted to explore. And he does, you know, things do change. Like he does meet people, and things happen. Um, and he goes back into his family and a lot of stuff goes down. Um, but I did, I did want to explore this, this, like, you've got to have a stake in the ground. You've got to put a stake in the ground. And, um, I, I don't know if what it is that I'm saying is making no, any sense. No, but it's but... so beautiful. No, I, I think that, you know, everything you're saying is almost coming from like the importance of empathy the importance of like coming from a more community um experience like bonding 
through community rather than say um a, being reactive with a negative impulse like t- for me that's what the store owner not owner but the store employee like her getting angry at thomas is um just being very reactive and like you know i know we can't sometimes we can't control how something comes out like of course we're all going to be reactive in certain moments um and there will be negative elements to our personalities but um i i think that what thomas goes through is trying to find his own voice and not needing to hide who like knowing he needs to be more open about who he is, but also knowing there's risks attached to that. So I think, you know, you're uh, wrestling with really difficult subjects, Matthew, but there is, there are pathways that you present us of how to live authentically. Um, But it's not that there aren't going to be obstacles that we're facing by being authentic to who we are. Um, So, yeah, I think it's, very profound what you've done in the novel you know it's profound what you've been saying here i um you know i find that these kinds of conversations bring me hope for having like you said contrary opinions but you can do that in a civil way or you know there are ways to have civil disagreements you know Uh, people talk about the the university as being a place that is, um, you know, bound up in this whole, this, this, you know, people are where, where there's a lot of fear and what have you. And I actually. Okay, Matthew, what do you think about teaching as an openly queer male educator like myself? This is only the beginning, everyone, because there is another almost 30 minute bonus audio episode on our Patreon patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. Matthew is going to give us his uncensored conversation about being an openly queer male teacher, having a book like Doubting Thomas that explores such controversial issues, being a queer male teacher accused of sexual abuse. I mean, I don't know how much more controversial we could get in our current time period. We have school board meetings that are going haywire just because LGBTQ literature is being taught in the classroom. So I dig into all of this with Matthew, but you have to join at $5 a month. It's only $5 a month, less than a latte, less than a cappuccino, less than an Americano. Um, You're going to get his bonus audio. Bonus audio of a Marilyn Monroe episode about JFK and Marilyn and the truth behind their relationship. Gregory Maguire's Wicked Movie Musical News. Um, There's so much bonus audio that exists on our Patreon. So $5 a month. I really appreciate that you join the Patreon. Um, I message you all. If you have questions, it's a great place for you to ask me questions. I respond to each of you on our Patreon. So I thank you all for your support. Thank you, Matthew, for joining. And I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I can't wait for you all to be back in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room next week when we have a queer discussion about queer modernist art, homoerotic art. Oh, it is a steamy episode next week. Okay, bye, everyone. 
Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room audience. It is Andrew Rimby, the director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Welcome to our winter season. And are you trying to stay warm this season? Well, guess what? We have the Ivory Tower Boiler Room Cafe. It is our Patreon where there is so much bonus content. So I'll go over all that. But first, it's only $5, which is less than a latte, a cappuccino, a coffee, a tea, basically anything now because, you know, we have some inflation going on. So join us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room. What do you get? You get Gregory Maguire giving us all the scoop on the Wicked Movie musical. You get Jesse Green giving us his hot takes on the Broadway musical. If you don't know who Jesse is, well, you should, because he's the chief theater critic of the New York Times. You get all the JFK and Marilyn Monroe scoop from Elizabeth Winder, a Marilyn Monroe biographer. So much more. You get all our video interviews. You can see everything, including the bonus content. And Mary's going to tell you from True Crime and Academia what you get later. But if you're not following us on social media and seeing our video teasers, well, you need that to stay, you know, nice and energized on these winter days. So follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. While it's still here, why don't you follow us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room? And here's my chief contributor, Mary. Hey, true crime friends and ivory tower boiler room friends. Like Andrew said, you're going to get access to all of this bonus content that includes true crime and academia. So not only will you have access to the bonus episode each month, you will also have video access to the interviews that I conduct on my podcast once a month. You get all of that extra content at your fingertips whenever you feel like watching it, literally for a cup of coffee. So why don't you just buy us one? That'd be so nice. We would appreciate that because we love your support already, but we could use a little bit more if you don't Oh, mind. yes, we could. And also, hey, do you all know you can actually DM us questions at our social media channels? Yes. Also, why don't you ask us questions with our social media posts? We love it. We even shout out questions on our episodes. And if you want, you can always email us at ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com to actually order our merchandise. So mm -hmm. we have hats, we have t-shirts, we have posters, we have everything. If you want any merchandise with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room logo, we're gonna make it happen for you. Okay, on that note, happy winter season, everyone. Happy winter. <laughs>